relationship beyond a definition, the boundless potential to engage, to encourage, uplift, and guide, conversations about growth, leadership unscripted with Dr. Virginia Hardy. Welcome to Leadership Unscripted, navigating your leadership journey. I am your host, Virginia Hardy. Joining me today is a friend and colleague, Dr. Kevin Kruger, CEO for NASPA. Dr. Kruger is an accomplished speaker, leader, and educator who draws on more than 40 years of experience in higher education. Since 2012, he has served as president and CEO for NASPA, Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. Prior to his role as president, Dr. Kruger worked for 18 years as the Associate Executive Director and served as the Chief Operating Officer and the Chief Financial Officer for NASPA. He has held a range of student affairs positions at Southern Miss University and the University of Maryland. As NASPA President, Kevin represents student affairs at a variety of national forums and is a frequent contributor to higher education news stories on the college student experience. Kevin has published and presented nationally and globally on trends in higher education, student success, degree completion, strategies for low-income and first-generation students, and change management and leadership in higher education. Dr. Kruger is the proud father of two children, one a recent college graduate and the other a college junior. He received his master's and PhD in counseling and personnel services from the University of Maryland. Kevin. Thank you so very much for joining us for this conversation and for sharing some of your wisdom and experience in higher education. So Kevin, you've been around higher ed for over 40 years or close to 40 years. So let's talk a bit about what you think is going is the future for higher education right now. We've experienced a pandemic, we've experienced a recession and all kinds of leadership changes, both nationally and of course uh, locally. Uh, what do you think is the future for higher education and leadership? Well, I, you know, let me say uh, two things. Um, one is I think the future of education is bright. Uh, the pandemic has reinforced the value of a college-educated citizenship. I think our companies need it, our economy needs it, our government needs folks who can operate in this, you know, very, very complex world. And, and so in, in that regard, I think the future of higher education is really bright. I think we have significant equity challenges that we're facing, and we can dig into that a little bit more, but it's gonna, and, and that, that relates a little bit to the leadership challenge. I think it's going to take a, a very special set of college leaders to um, help address some of these equity challenges, to figure out what in some ways would be a, a new normal for, for what college and college life is like following the pandemic. We've just been substantial changes and I think some of those changes are temporary but some of them are going to be more permanent. So you know we've heard about the, the demographic cliff uh, right. right the uh, the number of high school the 18 to 19 20 year olds and all of that um, how is that going to play and how will leaders in higher education have to um, rethink the quote traditional education model? Yeah well, it's a great question. I think, you know, there's a lot of things going on. First of all, when we talk about higher education, we have to acknowledge that we're talking about a very diverse system. And so the strategies and opportunities for one sector might be very different than another sector. For example, you know, uh, what we've seen through the pandemic is that elite private land grants, more selective publics, all have done very, very well from an enrollment standpoint and sort of a perceived fleet equality by our by people and, uh, who are, or 
more college eligible. And so for that sector, it may be one story. I'll come back to that. But for other sectors of higher education, small privates that are perhaps with small endowments, mm-hmm. um, less selective privates, and certainly the community college two-year sector is one where there's been a lot of stress, and regional public institutions that are in states or regions of the country where there's a demographic decline. So my point is that I think that different strategies for different types of institutions. For, for, for institutions that are staring into the, the enrollment cliff and are looking at enrollment challenges, I think there's some uh, innovations that are going to be necessary. I mean, you know, two directions I think I, can, I would talk, talk about. One is if the traditional age college student demographic is declining, where else can you get your students? And so there's a whole population of, of uh, Americans with some college no degree, for example. There's also folks who are interested in um, a degree, but on their own time and their own pace, and they often fit into what might be called a post-traditional um, environment. So mm-hmm. how, how, do, how can your institution attract adult learners, learners with children, folks who are military-connected? There's a whole variety of student demographics that are, that are different than that first-time, tradition, first-time full-time traditional live-on-campus kind of demographic. So institutions that are successful, successful will be able to expand their portfolio of, of, of offerings to address those populations. That might mean also a shift from just uh, thinking about uh, four-year credentials or in some cases two-year credentials to thinking about alternative credentials, which is increasingly something that adult learners are looking for who are trying to retool in a specific area. So the second area I'd just comment on is that you know what the pandemic told us is that we can educate mm-hmm. um, effectively online. Yep. And so um, we also know that offerings have to be flexible enough to address the complexities people bring to their lives, which means more online learning. Not necessarily all remote learning. We want to keep the campuses open and vibrant and available for resources. But we do want um, opportunities for uh, online learning to expand. To expand. So I think that's a, a real opportunity, I think, for, um, for many institutions. Third thing I would just say is that, you know, look, we're seeing uh, a, a lot of in- interesting business models that are being proposed for campuses that are struggling. Mills College is a great example. A, a very high-quality institution out in California was struggling for years, for the last several years, and they have now merged with, with Northeastern University mm-hmm. so that they can retain some of the best qualities of that residential campus environment but be attached fiscally to, um, to institutions, um, to another institution, in this case, Northeastern and four-year institutions. So I think we've seen a couple of those models. I think we'll see more of those mm-hmm. as... Some of the institutions that are maybe on the on the margins of survival may look to alternative models to um, to thrive. Last thing I would say, Virginia, is that even more so now for almost every institution, we have to be laser focused on student success. Mm-hmm. And student success is the primary focus of the campus. You know, so if, if in fact you're looking at declining demographic, which you know again almost everybody is, uh, for campuses that are struggling, the struggling um, increasing persistence and completion for the students you do get will have a, will have a bottom line ROI um, payoff. So, you know, it may mean that we are have to redouble and refocus our efforts into what do we know works for students, particularly students who are first generation, low income, black students, Latinx students, indigenous mm-hmm. students, who historically have attainment rates that are less than um, their, their more privileged peers. So how do we help those students increase their attainment levels? Those numbers actually can serve us and serve our institutions that uh, maybe were struggling, uh, mm-hmm. uh, struggling by, by keeping more students enrolled. 
but keeping them enrolled, but also then telling the story, the success stories of those students, so maybe we can get absolutely. more of them as well. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, look, you know, you know, we're in a, as I said from the very beginning, you know, mm -hmm. the reason I'm so enthusiastic about higher education is listen to our employers, listen to what our employers, whether they be large employers in Silicon Valley or the banking industry or smaller businesses in your community, what are they looking for? What they're looking for are, you know, high quality individuals who can function in very complex organizational climates and we need people who can, who can be innovative who can deal with them with, deal with the uh, uncertainty um, who can have good oral and written communication leaders uh, people can organize um, work so looking at these sort of cross -cut, cross cutting 21st century skills you're right when we graduate these students um, they've got to tell the story of how that education has prepared them for the 21st century workforce yeah definitely so, Kevin, now, um, we're, everybody's going to, not everybody, but most people are going to start looking at the, the new model that you just described, or, or new models, and particularly looking at post-traditional or um, adult learners and, uh -huh. and, and people doing more um, virtually because you're right, we've learned we can do it and do it well. So if that's the case, from a student affairs lens specifically, how will student affairs need to remake itself uh -huh. within, that, within the, those new models? So let me give you an example um, uh, that you're very familiar with. Uh, so five years ago, seven years ago, um, in the annual uh, survey that was done by the uh, Association of University Council and Center Directors, mm -hmm. only about 5% of council and center directors reported using any kind of telecounseling. It's five years ago. Um, we issued a report uh, um, uh, as a consortium of, of associations uh, prior to the pandemic that, that really called out the need for more telecounseling for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, uh, more access. Um, this very population we just described earlier, um, folks, students who are working full or part-time may need um, different kinds of access to psychological services. For our international students, where there may be a stigma mm -hmm. to going to the counseling center, um, you can kind of build a case for the need to have more options for students. Um, but that was very slow, okay? So yeah. then the pandemic hits, mm -hmm. and suddenly 90% of our counseling centers now are offered some kind of telecounseling. And that those numbers have, have retained. We now know that one of the elements of a successful counseling center is going to be both in-person clinical services as well as online services and telecounseling as well. So what we learned about that is that we can serve both populations and, and, and do that in a, at a high level and a high quality level. Mm -hmm. So think of something that we can expand that notion to think about what other ways in which we, in which students can benefit from both in-person experiences like academic advising, like career counseling but also could benefit from more options virtually. We did, again, before this pandemic, we had a, we had a summit in Chicago um, where we brought together you know, online learning experts to talk about what is the future of student affairs delivered in, in, a, in a more asynchronous and a more online environment. Not because the pandemic was before the pandemic, but because we knew our students were changing. Mm -hmm. you know, even before the pandemic, Virginia, I'm sure you've That's experienced true. this also, that a numbers of our traditional age college students who live in the residence halls mm -hmm. who are taking online classes was yep. increasing every year. Indeed. They want that flexibility. So, and some of that's because of preference. Some of that may be because of, again, life circumstance where, you know, again, we have more students who are parents, more students who are working. Mm -hmm. So having that kind of flexibility, I think is really important. So you could do wellness and counseling and advising and career counseling and, and a variety of other functions can be done effectively online. So I think the future is, totally embedded in our ability to, to address the, the, the multiple populations that we serve. And, and, and I think we should be thinking about recruiting different student affairs professionals to address, to address that. Yeah. One of my colleagues years, you know, 
four or five years ago said, you know, are we only going to be the, you know, student affairs only going to be the service for traditional age college students living in residence hall? And the answer is no. No. We need to be serving that broader population. And that means different kinds of training. It means yeah. different kinds of professionals come, come to the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it, is, it acknowledges that only 25% of college students live in a residence hall. So we have to be, we have to be willing to be flexible. And I, and I would say that one of the things that's super encouraging is one of the things, you know, what we know about how to support, again, first generation, low income, black students, Latinx students, indigenous students. How, what we know is that we can leverage online mentoring and coaching, for example, and in an advising student success initiative um, to, that really helps um, and is successful in helping uh, um, move these students to, uh, towards a degree. So we can use this, um, many of our technologies to reach more students and, and provide mm-hmm. the kind of contact that students really need um, in order to help them move forward. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Right now, it's, the operative word is, is being adaptive. Indeed, indeed. All right. So, Kevin, you have you have been around for quite a while now. You've had some various roles in student affairs in various institutions, and now you've been for about ten years or so. You've been the um, the CEO for NASPA. So, you've yeah. seen a lot of changes come and go, and you've seen a lot of leaders. So, as, as you look at and, and work with these various leaders. How are you? How do you define your own personal leadership, and how do you look at other people, uh, and 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 kind of not, judge is not the right word, but critique maybe critique their leadership. Yeah, well, you know, I think uh, you know, look, some things some things that um, remain the same. You know, having a clear vision around where you think and what what where your organization is headed, and being able to articulate that vision is critical. I think a lot of my job is also helping, as a leader, identify strategies that address that that, that reach towards that vision. And um, you know, uh, looking at strategy, which means looking at opportunities and risks, and assessing those risks, and then thinking about the kind of both financial as well as human resource capacities you need to to, to, to pull that off. So I think that's a lot of what I do. But I think increasingly, I would say that really what's important when I hear mostly from people who are frustrated is. Creating an organizational culture that that empowers people, that supports people, that allows for transparency, that values uh, equity and diversity uh, in, in, in meaningful and significant ways, that recognizes that the modern workforce is not the workforce of 20 years ago. Now, in higher education and student affairs, that's particularly important. We, we have glorified and romanticized this 50 to 60 hour work week that we used to think was such a good part of our work we did and thought that was student affairs work and uh-huh. well, that doesn't work today. It does and not. So we have, it does not work and our, and our workforce is telling us that. So yeah. I think thinking about how we can create an organizational culture that attracts people to our organization as opposed to um, that kind of repels them. And I think that that today is as important as anything from a, from a leader, leader standpoint. And uh, I think we need, and we need to bring more humanity into our supervision, mm-hmm. recognizing the, the really the complex complexities that people bring to their to their work in terms of their family and their mental health and their individual situations. And it doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable for their work, but I think we need I think we need more humanity. So I, I look at where where organizations thrive, it's where they've thrived creating that kind of organizational that organizational culture that people want to be a part of. And when I look at people leaving. Often it's because they, on the way out there, they talk about um, they, they, the lack of transparency, how they didn't feel valued, um, or they didn't feel like their uh, their opinion was uh, mattered, um, uh, or that they were 
not central to the core mission, or they didn't even understand what the value of the missions, the mission prop, uh, the, the mission vision proposition was. So, those are some of the things that come to mind for me. And uh, and I spend a lot of time in my current role, you know, trying to, you know, uh, create create that kind of organizational culture uh, from the top from the top up and mm-hmm. to model it, reflect it. And some of those things, you know, the, the, the you know, in this new workforce, you know, very small but tangible example is this. You hear from people all the time that they want something called work work life balance. Well, we know that doesn't exist. Right. Balance suggests even, and it's never mm-hmm. going to be even, right? You're you're at work more than anything else you do. Having said that, yeah. having appropriate and setting appropriate boundaries for how people work, I think, is an important thing that we can we can model. Now, an example of that is is email. So, if your boss is emailing you on a Saturday, you will feel obligated to respond on a Saturday, um, and mm-hmm. that kind of erodes that sense of work life balance you're trying to achieve, and, and perhaps even can create some you know, animosity within within um, how the organization functions. And so setting clear expectations about when and how we communicate with each other and when you turn when you turn your devices off, being explicit about those kinds of things can, I think, is one very, very small but tangible strategy we can use to try to create a more healthy organizational culture. Now, let's acknowledge we're on a college campus and, and <laughs> emergencies happen and things like that. So I'm not saying right. you've got to protest outside the president's house or a student who just has attempted suicide mm-hmm. um, or, you know, or a bomb threat. I mean, obviously crises don't, don't uh, honor uh, <laughs> you know, eight, eight hour, an eight hour work day. Um, yeah. But uh, look, a lot of what we do isn't, isn't urgent. It, it's right. just because we feel like it at the moment. And we have to understand the messages that our, we as leaders send you know, you know, if you send an email on Friday night at 10 o'clock at night and it's not an urgent, something that's just on your mind, uh, and we can say what we want to somebody. Well, you don't have to respond until Monday. Yeah. But, you know, look, people are trying to, you know, they're getting signals and cues. Mm-hmm. So I think we can do a better job of helping set expectations about work that are more, more humane and more consistent with how people want to live their lives and still do that and still manage all the crisis management, obviously. You know, that's an, uh, that example is an important one. I was good at, you know, sending an email because it crossed my mind no matter what time of the day or weekend and would say, no, I'm just doing it because I need to get it out of my system. You don't need to respond. But, of course, people were responding. And so I had to learn how to, yes, if I wanted to get it out of my system, but I can time it for when exactly. it actually gets exactly. released. Exactly. And so I, I've, I've learned to do that, to your point, of finding some balance for others, even if I may not have it for myself. <laughs> so, right, yes. yeah, right. Well, look, look, I mean, there's a reality here, and I know some of your audience will be senior leaders. Yes. And, you know, and we do have to think about how we take care of ourselves, obviously, because senior mm-hmm. leadership is challenging. And some of these strategies don't work. Like, you know, if your president writes you on a uh, Saturday morning at 7 a.m., you're going to respond mm-hmm. at 7.30. And that's just the yep. way it's going to be. You can't uh-huh. tell your president, well, I'll get back to you on Monday morning. That doesn't work. <laughs> so there's some things that just don't work. Uh, we have to kind of kind of adapt to this environment. But we, as leaders, can, be, for our own organization, set a culture and try to establish right. a culture mm-hmm. um, that uh, is, is healthier. And I think in the long run, look, when, you know, we, there's a lot of anecdotal and some non-anecdotal information that, that, that today's young and mid-level student and professional leaving the field in greater numbers than they did before for some of these very reasons we're discussing. And so if that's the case, you know, I think the real, the, you know, for me, the real opportunity is how do we create an organizational culture that attracts people into it as opposed to repels them? Um, and I think that's uh, 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 that's ultimately, you know, one of our one of our biggest challenges. Mm-hmm. There was a great McKinsey article, and it, it really is saying, you know, is this really about people leaving, or is it about creating again environments where people want to come, or, or, or environments where you want to able to retain people at a higher level? 
and this is not a student affairs article, but it's a, it's a sort of a, you know, covers business as general, but I think it's got a lot of good uh, uh, things for us to think about mm -hmm. um, as we construct our own environments. Okay, so uh, so Kevin, you mentioned that um, part of this in creating the, the right environment and the right transparency and the values is that, you know, people want to know that you value and appreciate diversity and equity. So what, what do you think are some actions that leaders mm -hmm. can commit to taking in order to, mm -hmm. to one, state it and show it and prove it, but also to mm -hmm. improve the DEI at mm -hmm. the workplace? Mm -hmm. Well, let me just speak as a uh, as a uh, white privileged man in a in a leadership position. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know for me, what's very important is that I do my own work. Um, that I have transparently um, do the work to, that allows me to, to have complex conversations about race and gender and identity. Um, I go back to uh, you know, like what Sean Harper said to us, you know, 2019 at the end of our conference. Mm -hmm. You know, he was you know really calling out college presidents and senior leaders, particularly white leaders, so it's like, uh, uh, you have to be able to, 2000, this was 2019, 2019, I'd say the same thing too, you have to be able to have difficult conversations about race without de being defensive, you know, without sort of the uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, white guilt trauma that we kind mm -hmm. of throw out, um, but, but let, you know, let's have really complex conversations about race and then do, and then use that as an impetus to bring that to your organization. So you can, you can talk about value and diversity, but if you never like do commit resources, for example, to organization-wide training around implicit bias, for example, mm -hmm. uh, understanding racism in the workplace. If you don't have those conversations, then you're, you don't give a voice to some of those concerns that your own staff might have. So that, that's, that's what, so, so you can talk about it, but you have to, yeah, you have to actually walk the walk a little bit, I think, and, that, and that's, that's, that's one thing. Second thing is, I think, you, you know, we, have to look at you know very affirmatively at our hiring practices. Are we looking at and uncovering the, the most diverse um, pool of candidates possible for the jobs we have in our office? Um, and I think that's something that's also really critical. And um, you know, because what I you know what I want to create, uh, if I'm if I want to say I value diversity, I want I want diverse voices, perspectives, and identities in my own organization. Mm -hmm. You have to you have to you have to be proactive about that. Can't throw up your hands and say, "Well, it's too bad. Like, nobody, no diverse candidates apply." Well, where did you, where did you advertise? Exactly. What did you say in your advertising? What did you say in your advertisement? Mm. What, you know, what are you saying about your organization that would signal to somebody that this is a safe and a, and a, and a good place to work for people who, you know, who have different identities, you know, non-majority non identities. And so, I think all those are things that you can do. But you know, it's a constant learning process. I think, um, I, you know, I try to show vulnerability myself, and like, yeah. and as I talk to my staff. You know, last thing I would say is, um, uh, and this I think is particularly critical in 2022 for leaders in any business, any higher education setting, whatever it is. People in general pay attention to when you say something and if you say something and how you say it. I think you have to be willing as a leader, and I'd say college presidents are good examples of this, to be willing to wade into the messiness of the world in which we live. And when something isn't right, that we have to say it's not right and, and call it out. And I think that, that that's a that's a new voice that leaders have. I, I Virginia, I've always thought about when I became president of NASA ten years ago. I had a very clear sense that I was handed a megaphone, mm -hmm. and um, and and I, I understood that um, that was a unique privilege I had to have to have this megaphone and be able to say things, and people will actually will listen. And so you can squander that opportunity and leave the megaphone on the desk, or you can pick it up and actually um, voice the things that you think are important to voice.
that's something that leaders have had to grapple with because you know I've, I've talked to college presidents you know you know over the years and so, for example and someone said well yeah we can't come we can't comment on everything can't comment on everything like well, well no you can't but you got to comment on something <laughs> um and 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 you can't you know and uh, and i think the other thing that's become more evident and is, is that you it, it, uh, in today's complex world yes we need to say something but you know, it's got to be more than thoughts and prayers, right? right. We're like, what yep. are you, so what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, if, if we're outraged about something, you know, and I'll just give you an example. I'm not, not propping up NASA because it's you know we just, we issued a report that that Amelia Parnell and one of my some of my staff did that was looked at was called statements to action. We examined college president statements and what they said they were going to do, and then did they follow up and do it? As an example, you know, and so for NASA, like, and we we can talk about George Floyd. But um, and we can talk about police reform. Um, but what are we doing to actually enable police reform? So we have a new paper coming out on helping college campuses and their and their college law enforcement think about what they should be doing around the reform movement and how to address some of these systemic issues that exist on campus around training and and, and uh, law enforcement practices that we have seen you know troubling instances of over the last you know five years. So I think you know throwing our hands up and saying well this is terrible is one thing, but but doing something about it. I think, I think our, today's, like our, our staff want, they want action. They want to yeah. do something. And the students, students do too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that, I think, right. I think so that is a new world for college presidents, a new world for, for leaders like myself and CEOs mm-hmm. that we have to be thinking about what to say, when to say, how to say it, and then to follow it up with things that are more that are tangible. We, so, every time we issue a statement, my staff, we say, so yeah, we, we're outraged, but what are we going to do? How, how can we help people? know do something about this so i think that's part of the part of the deal no no i appreciate that kevin that's a sticky situation at times and not every not every Mm -hmm. leader has the uh the courage to be able to make that statement of this is awful and here's what we're going to do and some of it is because they just don't know how some of it is because they don't believe that this is an issue and so but you have this uproar or this expectation from in this case college campuses that is saying yeah you you better say something or you should say something from a leadership lens how do we get those individuals to move and to to work towards you know because there's a difference between you know the words diversity equity and inclusion Mm -hmm. and to really work towards inclusive leadership Mm -hmm. well yeah <laughs> and that, that's the million dollar question. Um, let me just acknowledge before I sort of give you my thoughts about that that we also are in very challenging times Pol- around conversations about race yes. and, and, and gender and gender identity yes. and sexual orientation in our country. Correct. As our country has become more polarized, mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge that sometimes um, leaders have to try to address change um, in different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. If you happen to be in a state, where you can't even say the word gay, um, mm-hmm. or you can't even use, you can't even literally teach what we have been doing for two decades or three decades, you know, what we classically would call diversity training. When that suddenly becomes <laughs> either illegal or um, or the exercise of that, of that practice would result in loss of state funding, mm-hmm. you have to acknowledge the difficult position that college leaders are in today. That's so right. you, may ha- you may have the best intentions, you may be on the, you know, have, Exactly where we want to be from uh, an inclusive leadership standpoint, but not have the be able to exercise mm-hmm. the tools necessary because of the oversight of legislators and other and others. So this is this is not easy. This is not easy That's stuff. Right. I don't want to pretend that it is. Um, I, I, you know, 
on, on the other hand, I would go back to, um, you know, the kind of uh, the kind of you know collegiate leaders we need both at the presidential level and the vice presidential level and the provost level, you know, that that are, that are um, reflective of the, what where we need our society to go. And I think you know I would rehash what Sean Harper's like. Part of it, you got to do your own work. You have to you have to be able to have these conversations to start off. Let's see if that's one thing. Then you have to engage in actual behaviors that um, that are consistent with those values. If you're a provost or a college president, what are you doing to attract and retain faculty of color? You know, it's important that students go to the classroom and see people and faculty that look like themselves and have experiences like themselves. And so, what are we what are we doing to do that? Is there a strategy in place? Like, you want to attract more faculty of color, and you're not University of Pennsylvania or Harvard or right. you know, in the lead. It's, it's not like you just flip a switch, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's resources. It's, it's going to take a while. But do you have a strategy? Do you have a plan in place? Is it a priority? Is it a strategic priority for your deans for, for there to be a uh, – to look at opportunities for attracting faculty of color? I would say the same thing for, you know, for um, student affairs professionals. Right. Again, you know, if you're in, you know, Greenville, North Carolina, you have uh, a place where, where people want to live. Mm-hmm. If you're in some parts of a country where you want to be the only black person on staff – that's going to be a little bit more difficult. But again, do you have a strategy for that? How are you trying to create a culture that attracts people like that? You know, to attracts you know, folks from different races and ethnicities. So um, I, I just think that we need bold leadership in today's world. And I think, you know, honestly, Virginia, I think that if we don't, you know, college presidents or leaders don't, don't do this, they're going to, I mean, they're going to increasingly find a, a dissatisfaction from their own community and from their students. You know, you know how do you attract the most talented, best, and brightest students to your mm-hmm. campus. You know, students also looking for this. Yep. You know, this this generation has a very different view of race mm-hmm. um, and, and racism and given their experiences. And so they're looking for a different kind of place that is much more um, accountable for and, and affirmative about the kind of environment they're trying to create. Yeah, they truly are, and we better listen to them because uh, otherwise they will vote with their feet. Well, they, well yeah, <laughs> right, or they'll be sitting at the president's door. <laughs> yes, indeed, that too. <laughs> All right, so there are several institutions that are experiencing leadership transitions. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what makes for a successful transition? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, yeah, and just, just a quick comment about that. I mean, we've seen a number of articles about this, but I think the pandemic has been that's sort of the, the last straw for a lot of uh, established mm-hmm. college presidents. It's accelerated retirements. So There's already a demographic that was trending older anyhow, mm-hmm. but this has sort of accelerated that. So I think we are looking at a lot of transitions, both in presidential level as also in student affairs. You know, I think what makes for a successful transition is some intentionality about the, about how you enter the, the culture of that new place. You know, you know, I always say like people will start a job, like go to, go to school, learn the values of the place. What's what's going on in terms of morale at your, your organization or institution? Um, understand the cost structure. What roles are people playing, and and where are some of those roles overlapping, or where are the possible efficiencies? Where where are there collaborative opportunities cross organizationally, whether that's divisionally, whatever that might be. look at those opportunities. In other words, go to school, find out, do your homework, find that out. Don't necessarily come in with a set of solutions before you've done that homework. And I think of that. Like what you know, there's that kind of classic first 90, first 100 days. Mm-hmm. Is that that helps enormously with the transition? And then I think you know, lead with your values. It goes back to what Nick talked about before. You know, so it's, what are you talking about? What are you emphasizing? I think in today's uh, organizational cultures, 
our, our staff, our faculty are feeling uh, beat down, exhausted, um, overwhelmed. So before you come in with a hundred new ideas, let's like, you know, I think you need to also acknowledge what you've got in front of you, which is a very, a very delicate uh, infrastructure of staff and faculty who are really battered as a result of the pandemic. And so we got to, we got to acknowledge that right now first. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a need for healing. And I think, I think new leaders can do that. Just looking at student affairs, for example, you know, we did this, uh, this is coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, a task force on the future of student affairs. And we did some data collection around what people were feeling and, um, and, uh, um, the majority of over three quarters of young and mid-level professionals didn't feel valued by their organization. I think that takes something that is sort of, I would say easily fixable, but one that should be addressable. And that is how we uh, message, new leaders can message to the, to the, to their faculty and their staff throughout the institution about the important role they play and the goal that the institution has about supporting students, you know, creating, you know, talented graduates, you know, helping people get you know, the normal outcomes we're looking for, but helping people see the role that they play, whether they be working in the dining hall, mm-hmm. whether they're an adjunct faculty, um, a residence hall director, or you, you name it. I mean, yeah. you know, sort of making sure that, that that kind of thing. I think, you know, I was really struck by, uh, it came out in the news today, there's a, the president of University of Nevada, Las Vegas, has created an, an avatar that, that people can go to their website and ask, you know, the avatar president questions. And, so I, I saw an interview with this president, and he said, you know, what, what he really wants to do is be able to walk around like, and, and know every student's name. And, and so, like, I, I do think that, you know, go back to this is old leadership theory, but, like, manage by walking around. Yes. Um, like, I, you know, I think for students and staff, if, I was, if I'm in a transitioning period as a leader, I want to be seen. I want to be visible. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, maybe a year from now I won't be because I'll be so embedded in right. the organizational strategy. But in the beginning, I'll be seen. Go to events. Go, you know, be out there. Mm-hmm. Talk to students. Talk to staff. Be a human being. I think to, in today's world that that goes a long way. Yeah, it is very much appreciated when people see that you're visible and you're approachable. Right? It yeah, helps. Exactly. Yeah. I've, yeah, seen it, I've seen that work in a very positive way for um, one leader, and then an, an, I've seen another leader who refu- who refused to do any of that, and mm-hmm. there were consequences for that as well. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but you know, but, but you know, back to our earlier example we had. Okay, so so uh, let's say you want to, and you're encouraging conversations with students about their experience, let's say around race on campus, mm-hmm. and you know, let's say you're interested in how Black students are experiencing your institution. Uh-huh. Well, you can't have that conversation if you can't talk about race. So it goes back to like, yeah. You know, so you can, so yeah, you want to be accessible, you want to be approachable, you want to hear, get feedback, but you also need to be able to have that conversation. So it's a kind of a kind of a combination of those two things that we talked about before. Yeah, yeah. And 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 even if you don't like the conversation, please still engage in it. So you're correct. Yeah, very much exactly, with exactly. That. Right. You need got to be willing to hear the <laughs> stuff you don't want to hear. Right? Exactly. So so, yeah. so so Kevin, so uh, so you've you've been at this for a while. So how do you continue to grow? And develop as a leader. Yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, I, I I do read. Uh, I try to try to uh, understand. You know, what's happening both in the higher ed world as well as outside the higher world. That's something that I find interesting. Mm-hmm. I try to also. I happen to have, I have a kind of a, a hobby as a as a financial analyst. Uh, I'm not an economist, but I you know, but I, I do try to really understand how the world and the United States economy is affecting different things so I, so that because I think it helps me see the, the trend lines a little bit um, mm-hmm. you know I think I think you have to be intellectually curious if you're going to be able to and you have to kind of understand not just your industry but others as well 
in order to kind of extract and learn from that. I do have a, you know, I, I think the other thing I would say is, and I certainly have relied on this a lot in the last two years, um, is uh, finding a, a, a group of uh, close executives that I can be vulnerable with and talk with. And I think we all need that kind of experience at this level because sometimes you can't always mm-hmm. share everything with your staff. That's right. So I, there's a group of about five CEOs and I that we get that we gather regularly and we did very regularly during the pandemic mm. as we were thinking about, you know, difficult choices about furloughs and layoffs mm-hmm. and budget cuts and these kind of things. And just strategy, um, you know, so yeah, you, and you learn from your colleagues, right? So some of that sort of being, you know, you have to be open to thinking differently about how you might do something. That's one. Yeah, that's only one thing. I'm a believer in 360 evaluation, 360 feedback. I learn a lot from what people tell me about what I'm doing. That's a, a way that I try to improve my own my own practice a little bit. Uh, and, and I and I also look at what we do, Virginia, as as a craft. You know, if you if you look at actors, for example, uh, and actresses, and you know, the, who are in theater and movies, they're constantly working on their craft, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that's and I'm doing the same thing. I mean, I you know. I'm, I'm at the end of my career and I'm still trying to get better at this, whether it be a better supervisor or a better speaker or better at understanding strategy um, or whatever that might be. I'm, tr- I'm always trying to, to think about how to, to improve um, what, what I do. Uh, you know, I'm an STJ, so, uh-huh. so I'm a doer. I'm an action yes. kind of guy. Uh-huh. Get stuff done, strategy. You know, when you have a conversation with me, I have to stop myself from getting tactical right away. Um, but, you know, as, as a ESTJ, I also know that my kind of the weakest part of me is my F. And so I've also as a leader really tried to kind of just understand the value of compassion and empathy in the ways in which I work with people and the way in which I um, get think you know, do things. So that's another kind of place where I've really tried to expand my 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 uh, my competency. Okay. You know, I, I always try to make sure that I'm I'm learning regularly like you, but also learning from things that didn't go well or things that did go well and how to use that and using that for the next thing to, to make it better. Self-awareness is a huge piece, I think, for to, to be a strong leader and an effective leader. So when you think about yourself and as you go into to work each day, whether it's virtual or in person, what's, what is a question or two that you ask the person in the mirror to get you going and to, and to see if you're on the right track? That's, 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 that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, I don't know if it's a question, but I, uh, you know, I, 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 in my heart, believe the power of bringing people together to solve problems. And, uh, and so it's not really a question, but it's sort of challenging myself to say, like, you know, you, you don't have all the answers. You know, it's a really interesting trap you get into with being a, being a CEO or a senior leader you can easily convince yourself that you have to have all the answers and that, and that that's what people expect, right? You know, you're the president, you, you know, you, you know, you tell us. And so, you know, for me, it's like constantly trying to remind myself about how important it is to, to get varied and diverse perspectives and to be able to create a culture that allows that to happen. So, I mean, that, that's, that's probably for me is the thing I'm just, you know, that I, I'm always looking for ways to do that because when that goes well, always end up with a better outcome yeah. um, and if I you know here's an example um, I we were in a meeting about membership at Finasco mm-hmm. and we have about 15 people in the room and we're looking at a whole bunch of data and I'm a data geek I love the data and so you know we have a staff person they're presenting the data and I'm kind of sitting there and 
looking at the data and I'm waiting for people to kind of so on that phone line. I'm like so engaged with this. Well, at the end, to make a long story short, the, that 45 minute meeting, I probably asked uh, probably 80% of the questions of the person who was presenting the data because I was so interested and I was interested in the implications for us. And then when the meeting was over, I got with my senior team. I said, that didn't work, did it? And they're like, what do you mean? Like, no, I can't, it doesn't, if, I, if I'm the only one speaking, then I've, I've, I've eliminated the voices of the people, that, other people in the room, even if I didn't do it intentionally. Because, you know, when the president speaks, they're going to kind of just, they're going to yep, sit back, you know. Exactly. How do I create a, how do we create an environment where where more voices will be brought, be brought to the table? And mm-hmm. so that for me, I said, maybe I need to have my own private briefing on this data so I don't dominate the conversation because i got so many questions. I'll let the staff know. Maybe I don't need to be in that meeting. Maybe that group should be developing some proposals to bring to me. But in other words, it's a way of sort of thinking about, like, what's the, understanding the, the power you have, the, the positionality, what that means for people. And just try, and trying to create those spaces where you can get the most input because you know that's going to be the better outcome. Yeah, I, I completely agree. One of the questions I always ask folks is whose voice is missing from this conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, in the, example, in the example I just gave you, everybody's voice was missing, even though I had super talented people there. And it wasn't that I was trying to dominate. It's just I was so curious about all this stuff. My enthusiasm for the data ended up having the, having the unintended uh, mm-hmm. inco- outcome. Of, of excluding other voices, and that's exactly what I don't want. Exactly. So, taking a critical look at that. that for me, that's an example. Like, you know, again, I'm at the end of my career. Mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure out, like, how to do mm-hmm. this right sometimes. Exactly. Oh, I don't I know? I understand that one. All right. So, let's, um, I'm going to wrap up with what are some, what's some advice you would give to someone who is, who is aspiring to go into a leadership position or, or entering one for the first time? Uh, yeah. Okay. A couple of things come to mind. One is you got to have you need to have stamina. These, uh, you know, there's no sugarcoating this. These jobs are hard. Um, uh, they they require you know um, a, a full commitment um, given the complexity of the issues we're dealing with. And they're, they're they're simply not easy. You're managing institutional politics, relationships with people who don't understand what you do. Trying to get your staff and, and team motivated. Um, you're dealing with crises that you never thought you'd deal with. So it, it, it takes stamina. Um, to do this work, so you got to know that going. Got to know that going. You know, find colleagues that you can confide in and rely on. Everybody you have to have some people that you can process the difficulty of this work, um, and that's probably not somebody at your own institution, mm-hmm. because of the nature of it. Um, you know, one of the realities: the higher up you go, Virginia, you know this, the fewer people you have to talk to. Yes, and that is uh, so. There's a, I mean, it's a kind of a loneliness about that that you have to kind of that you have to kind of deal with. Um, you just don't have the same community before because of the positional positionality. I would add to that uh, as you think about all the things you do and you know, um, nothing is confidential. <laughs> um, nothing. So I don't true. Care so true. I don't think you're talking. To you. I mean, that's a reality that you probably don't know until you get up lucky. You think you're talking confidentiality, and you're not. Um, and so, just you know, under, understand that everything yes. you write, everything yes. you say, people yes. you talk to, people you confide in, nothing is confidential. Yes, um, and that will save you a lot of headaches, um, and maybe even your job. Um, oh, uh, so true, so true. Yeah. Right? Yeah, um, I think that that's uh, that's a reality. And uh, you know, and then I think the last thing I would just say is um, these are difficult jobs. Senior leaders in higher education, college president, provost, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Be your student affairs. You have you have to be able to extract the good um, mm-hmm. because it's just too demanding and overwhelming if all you're dealing with is just the 
muck of problems that, that you end up under, at your desk. Because you have to extract the good and, whatever, and do that whatever way you can, whether that's mentoring young professionals or, or making sure you're connecting to students, doing the things that's, that, where you see students really benefiting and enjoying the experience that they had. I mean, you've you got to extract the good from the work you do because you can lose sight of it sometimes and it can be, you know, it can really downright depressing. So I think that's something that I would uh, urge people to think about as well. I, I totally agree with that. There are times when things are just really icky and I will leave my office and go to the student center and just, I used to do right. the same thing. I used to do the same thing. I used to go out of yeah. the student activities office and just hang out because that's, you know, it's really energizing. It, exactly. I would just say, the last thing I'd say was, um, uh, and this is a different journey for everyone, but it's easy given the demands of the job to ignore your nutrition, your mm-hmm. sleep, your exercise, all those things, kind of things that, that allow you to be perform at your highest level. You know, this is, this is uh, you know, your, your cup is not endless. You have to take care of, you have to take care of the, you know, of the vessel. And that means you've got to take care of the things that, you know, about yourself that you know matter, whether that's, you know, whether it's your mental health or your stress or anxiety or exercise or nutrition. Um, all those things, you know, are important. So you can do this, you know, you can do this for the long mm-hmm. haul. That's um, exactly you know, right. Like Pat, Pat, somebody like Pat Whiteley is the student affairs VP at the University of Miami for 25 years. And she would say, you know, like, I don't think anybody can do this job this long anymore. It's just not possible. But she pays attention to, you know, look at, you know, I look at, like, what does she do? She exercises regularly. She pays attention to nutrition. She does pancakes with Pat. So she gets to see students uh, yeah. over, you know, once a semester with over pancakes, you know, and like, you know, like, extracting the joy you know mm-hmm. so uh, you know i think we just need to be intentional about those kinds of things yeah i uh i've told each of my chancellors um was that uh, uh one of the non-negotiables for me was being able to work out that and it might mean that i yeah. need to leave early yeah. to go do it yeah. but that was non-negotiable yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i was like but uh, if you might remember larry roper who had mm-hmm. been the vp of student affairs at uh, oregon state and you know he you know he had a big job Big responsibilities, but he was determined that, and I'm, you know, like at four o'clock, he was going to be home when his son came home from school for like two hours and spend yeah. time with him, and uh-huh. then he'd go back to work. Okay. But like he, yeah. you know, he was, he was, that was how it worked for him. I mean, yes. I think it would be, you know, like that, you know, that was important to him. He wasn't mm-hmm. going to miss his, his son's life. Right. But how, how did he mesh that with a job that sometimes required him to be on campus until mm-hmm. nine o'clock at night? He just took that time. Yeah. And by him taking that time, he gave permission for his staff to do the same. Exactly. You know, and to also pay attention to that, which I think this is an example, you know, 10, 15 years ago, but it's one that's really stuck with mm-hmm. me. Yeah, great. Kevin, thank you so much for having this conversation with yeah, us. Yeah, the conversation. Yes. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was yes, fun. Yes, I did so too. Thank you, and we greatly appreciate it. And uh, hope that the rest of the semester ends up well for all of us, huh? <laughs> yes, thank you. You, t- you take care now. Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing some good examples and your own personal experiences in being a senior leader, or as you call an advanced senior leader. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for sharing some information that we walk away with about what it takes to be an efficient and effective leader. For example, have a clear vision and articulate that often so that people understand from whence you're coming. Provide a strategy for how to bring that vision into fruition As you do that, we all know that we've got to look at the opportunities as well as the risk and assess those to see which ones we want to do. We also know that we need to create a culture that will provide support, transparency, and will show that we value diversity and equity. The modern workforce as we know today is a, a great deal different than what it was 15 or even 10 years ago, so we all need to be adaptive and be ready to try to change some of those different things to help our 
employees be successful. One of the things that I really like that you've shared with us is around um, stamina. And I don't know that I had used that word or thought of that word before, that as you get into these leadership roles, you have to have stamina. And we, in order to have that stamina, we need to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves in all kinds of ways, and also that we find someone or more than one with whom we can be vulnerable and share. Thank you so very much for a very powerful and helpful conversation. I know everyone will be pleased and will learn a great deal. Thank you all for joining me today for Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey with Dr. Kevin Kruger, CEO for NASPA, Student Affairs Administrators in Higher Education. Join me for the next episode as we continue the journey of becoming successful and effective leaders. This has been Virginia Hardy, your host of Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey. Joining Dr. Virginia Hardy today for Leadership Unscripted, Navigating Your Leadership Journey. Are you looking to make the leap from your current role to a leadership position? Or you are a current leader looking to sharpen your edge? Join Dr. Virginia Hardy for new podcast episodes each month for more leadership content meant to inspire, empower, and influence your individual path on leadership development.